Okie dokie. So, welcome to the new episode of That IT Show podcast. Today we are continuing on the topic of DevOps a little bit, which we covered a part of in one of the previous episodes. We are going to specifically talk about uh, containerization um, technologies uh, and specifically use case that we are going to be discussing today is going to be related to, uh, let's say, a scenario in which we are discussing containerization of monolithic applications. So how to uh, containerize what we usually refer to as monolith and how that can be done, what needs to be done for that to happen and how we are going to operate and manage uh, that application in the future uh, in the case of us doing a successful containerization, let's say project. With that being said, so welcome to that IT show podcast where talk meets tech and vice versa. And let's roll the intro. Okay. You have questions or should I start? Do you have some difficult topics that you want to cover at the beginning? Yes. Go ahead. Is there any reason why we should abandon monoliths and uh, move to uh, dockers or containers? There might be some, but they are, I think, rare, uh, much more rare than what the technical marketing or marketing l uh, lets you believe. Okay, and the other one is, is containerization in principle faster than monoliths? If the design of the application is correct, if we are talking about scale out, there is a big chance for the application to be faster, but it heavily depends on the architecture. And I think, uh, okay, I'm completely fine with uh, either, answer. either answer or both answers. But uh, I think that uh, the thing that we are uh, forgetting is also the actual usage case. Of course. Because if you redesign or uh, over-design the- Refactor. Uh, uh, if you over-design the architecture, you're going to, going to end up with an amazing architecture that can scale up, scale up but is never going to be scaling up. So you're wasting resources to uh, refactor the code, uh, to redesign the application without any actual meaning or uh, gain. Thank you for uh, saying that out loud because that's actually my pet peeve. That's the reason why I wanted us to do this episode because uh, I already mentioned more than a few times in previous episodes, I'm more of a cloud realist than a cloud big enthusiast. There are really uh, business related technical and rational reasons behind that. And I find uh, uh, the, the way in which the uh, uh, Docker, Podman, uh, containerization, Kubernetes, OpenShift, whatnot, basically technical agenda uh, being shoved down our throat, throats is completely useless and way of base because there are applications and there are many applications that we can, we can spend from now to eternity trying to containerize them and we're going to get absolutely nothing out of it. Uh, Okay, we are going to get, uh, the thing that we are going to get out of it is uh, uh, contract hours. 
So the only thing that... Let's say that that's not the topic of this podcast. This <laughs> yes, time. yes, but I think sometimes that this is the only reason why people are uh, dealing with containers. You're absolutely on point. Uh, because sometimes when I see some of the solutions, I think that one of the most important applications that should be ported uh, into a container should be Clipper. Having a clipper running in a container as a single user in a single user application would probably be the most important application for a lot of cases. Because there are thousands and thousands of clipper-based applications which could then run in containers. Yes, and this is one thing. And the other thing is that uh, running... running. Uh, what the hell did I do to you today to, for you to become so insanely crazy? <laughs> I, think, I think that the problem is that uh, what I'm trying to say is that... Uh, uh, a reason behind redesigning and over-designing things is that sometimes we are trying to solve a problem of crashing a nut with a bulldozer. By using a bulldozer or a tank. By using a bulldozer. Sometimes a simple visual basic application running in a docker or a simple visual basic application running by itself or a statically linked application in Linux is good enough to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. We don't need to have a multi-platform, uh, uh, multi lambda, lambda serverless-based uh, architecture that is going to be communicating over protected channels and HTTPS and whatever not. Uh, it just sometimes, and I think most of the time, we are just complicating. Are you basically talking about over design from the perspective of people doing over design for over designing reasons. I think that we should first start from the developer standpoint. A lot of developers, because uh, there is a reason why I asked you this question before we go there, because uh, if I'm being realistic and self-critical, I'm definitely prone to thinking like that in many occasions. Let's say sound design and stuff like that. And you commented on this many, many times. So I understand the impulse for certain things, not for everything, of course. So feel free to uh, use a hammer to uh, hammer that point home whenever I say something stupid today. I think that the idea, uh, my idea behind all of this is exactly the hammer because when everything, or, or the only thing that you have a hammer, uh, everything looks, looks like a nail. So mm -hmm. this is one of those problems where a developer uh, no, uh, the problem. Uh, is he has a solution and then he tries to fit the problem to the solution. Yeah, solution without a problem. No, 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 a solution and a problem, but the solution should fit the problem, not problem should, uh, the problem shouldn't be fitting a solution. But sometimes uh, some of the solutions are created in such a way that the problem should, uh, should be part of it. So this is one of those things when Sometimes I think that uh, a lot of the problems come out of a developer not understanding the problem, having a limited amount of knowledge about how this problem can be uh, solved in different ways. From technical standpoint. From technical standpoint. Okay. And then having too much knowledge about a particular uh, architecture and not enough knowledge about any other architecture and then just fitting whatever he knows into how the problem should be solved. And this is one of those things that is, no, uh, from my perspective, normal when you think about human beings, but enormously uh, wasteful when you think about solutions. Okay. Sounds reasonable. Okay. What's happened to you? 
No, no, I'm just, I'm just uh, making a point. Shorter hair brings the reasonable dude in you or something? Um, I'm just testing uh, t- 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 testing uh, an, edge case. an edge case. <laughs> edge case. <laughs> That's cool. Okay. So basically, uh, in the past couple of years, I've been dealing with dozens and dozens and dozens of either custom or uh, mostly VMware courses related to containerization. Both, let's say, basic level and much more advanced because VMware um, developed a like a huge load of different apps and concepts, albeit being very late to the market. Let's be honest about that as well. Uh, that should cover any kind of enterprise use case for for uh, containerization. And they did it really well, actually, because the UIs that they have are incredible. I think that both, of, both you and I agree that the UIs for managing, let's say, larger Kubernetes or OpenShift-based installations are not necessarily very good from uh, most of the manufacturers, borderline useless in, in a lot of the use cases. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that because of my PhD work, I've been involved heavily in some stuff related to Kubernetes. And uh, I have prior experience of working with it and with OpenShift, and I appreciate all of those orchestration slash scale-out mechanisms that you can implement, and all of that is uh, beautiful and sounds very good as a part of the story that you can tell a developer or some kind of Excel IT manager or whatnot. But um, the, the second part of that actual reality, not the virtual reality, is the fact that there are many applications that have no business being containerized. Your uh, advantage, your uh, example with, what was it? It wasn't Delphi, it was... Clipper. Clipper, okay. Clipper, Delphi, whatever it is, was actually right on point. And cloud in general can be uh, kind of used for that metaphor. Because in general, a lot of people tend to think about cloud as a solution for a certain problem, but in exactly the way in which you described it. Basically, solution without a problem. And there are so many different types of workloads that you cannot really cover in cloud correctly and that that kind of just comes full circle when you start dealing with containerization the starting point of this this discussion is exactly the right question that you asked which is do we need to containerize the monoliths i think that's that merits further analysis and if we do basically we can ask certain set of questions like why should we containerize the monolith if it works well the answer to that question might be if the architecture is good enough and if it can be containerized for the purpose of actually gaining additional performance, then it, it kind of makes sense. But not from the metaphor, standpoint of a metaphor that I was giving, um, you know, designing for design reasons only and to future-proof and be ready for the future and whatnot, which is what I did with certain pieces of equipment that we use. And you commented on this privately and you were completely correct. We have too many cameras and we don't use most of them, just as an example. When you apply that thought process to the process of redesigning, refactoring applications, you get to the very same results. You're basically trying to figure out the way to look smart for the purpose of looking smart if and when a certain scenario happens for you in the future. And if that's the basic reason why you are doing the containerization, then that reason is not good enough. Yes, but uh, I am with you on most of it. But my main thing is that, uh, for example, when you're talking about cameras, Mm -hmm. uh, I consider the part 
about the cameras as something that can be called research and development. Exactly the way in which I'm and, treating it as and, well. And this is this is something. It's always that, a learning opportunity. Yes, and this is learning opportunity. This is one thing, and the other thing is that you need to learn something. You have spare parts. That's okay, but uh, the idea of pushing uh, a large number of cam cameras on without having any additional um, benefit out of mm -hmm. it would be stupid. Hence my metaphor for containers. And, and the problem with containers is that sometimes people are doing extremely stupid things. Mm -hmm. They are uh, trying to refactor or reparse the monoliths into different containers or the serverless. I'm like I like the serverless idea right now. As if that exists. Yes, it's it's nobody's computer. Yeah, yeah, sure. So 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 if the cloud is other people's computer, the serverless is nobody's computer. Mm -hmm. But I like the idea of having something that is. Uh, being reparsed and being refactored just for the sake of the intellectual exercise. and Not a production application. Yes, not a production application. Okay. And this is something that I... I'm going to do a, a couple of references today. Uh, first of the references, I think that everybody who is into uh, trying to design something should be reading two books. One, books, one book is... Uh, Mythical Man Month, mm -hmm. and the other is systematics. Uh, systematic, systematics, uh, the theory of the systems. Uh, both of those books are old enough to be older than me. So mm -hmm. they're, they're, they were uh, written somewhere in the beginning of seventies, and both of those books are trying to explain, in a particularly, uh, I would say, amusing way, how the big systems work. Mm -hmm. And I think that people should start from there. There, mm -hmm. and then. They should be uh, looking up resources on the internet. And one of the resources that I'm going to mention right now because I know about it and I was just uh, looking at it. There's going to be a, a link in the description. Uh, there was an NDC, um, NDC uh, a lecture about how not to do the containerization mm -hmm. or how to not to do microservices. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of those things that you need to uh, see. And then after you have uh, read and uh, saw all of those, then try to think about do you need a container or not. While being uh, critical. While being critical. Okay, because the two of the most common ways in which people do this, we're specifically talking about refactoring existing applications today. I'm not, I'm not talking about developing the new ones, at least not yet. Maybe we might cover that today as well or in a future episode. But there are two main ways in which people do that. They take a look at the list of services that that application has and then say, okay, we have 20 services. That means 20 containers, developer one, two, three, and four. Each and every one of you is going to refactor five of those services in one container or each and every one in separate containers and whatnot. Tell me when you're done. That's the first way. The second way is to uh, take a little bit more monolithic approach and say, we're not talking about individual services. We are talking about, let's say, codependent services sticking them inside one, let's say, container. And there can be a variety of different ways of doing so this. So modules, modules, Mod functional yeah. module, whatever. Let's say instead of having 20 containers, we have five. Okay. And then that's our monolithic applications, application sliced and diced into microservices. Both of these ways are wrong. I think that both of these ways are usually wrong. Mm -hmm. They can be correct. 
But my biggest concern when I, when I uh, talk to somebody who is into continuization mm -hmm. is usually starting from the point of uh, the container should be able to be deployed and destroyed at will. Mm -hmm. Is your application designed in such a way that I can deploy and destroy any part of your service if I leave at least one of them running mm -hmm. and the application is going to run? Yeah. Again, uh, fundamental topic of design. Yeah, and this is this is one of those things where almost all of the design fails. Correct. Because what the people usually do is they design container by container, function by function. Correct. And then uh, they have no use of uh, functions running concurrently. Mm -hmm. They have no idea of concurrence. Uh, out of having no idea of concurrence, they have no idea of coherence. So they have no idea on how to keep the whole system working in a stable in, state. In, in stable state. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you lost the entirety of the benefits of containers while, while adding, at the same time adding uh, complexity upon complexity upon complexity and adding additional CPU cycles. And this is the thing that we are trying to avoid because we are trying to scale and we are trying to avoid uh, doing unwanted work. Okay. And suddenly we are creating basically what could have been a single VM. We have created 20 containers out of it. Let's say that uh, by far the most containers uh, that we, are, uh, we have worldwide in production nowadays are being run for the purposes of running web applications. Yes. I think we agree on that. Which means that even if you look at the most common, let's say, types of applications, like let's say two-tier, three-tier application, whatnot, whatever you want to call them, uh, you're going to run into additional complexity because of running things in containers that you don't necessarily, uh, that you didn't necessarily consider while you were planning your refactorization. For example, if I'm about to do, let's say, an open source application, which has, let's say, MySQL as a backend database, and it's running, for example, on, let's keep it super simple, on Apache web server. Let's say we have just those two tiers, database and the front-end web part. There is no, literally no person on the planet that is going to force me to run that MySQL in a container. Okay? Okay. There are multiple design-related reasons for that. And out of that comes a variety of different reasons why you shouldn't do it this way. I've come to, came, to, came to this conclusion years ago in various projects that I used to do. In those use cases, if your end goal is to create an application that is highly available, which is most commonly the reason why we develop applications like this, that means that you have to have multiple front-end web servers running the web application while being connected to the back-end database. If you want to load balance the database, that's a can of worms that you don't want to open because that's highly complex, especially in MySQL. It's not exactly it's a straightforward thing. Okay, to but solve. it's not a walk in the park, even if using my Microsoft SQL. So no, no, no. It's it's basically applied to any database. Yes. What I'm about to say, and I know that people will disagree, but yeah, consistency learn, is a witch. Yeah, and learn your high availability systems for databases for a high performance environments. Then we'll talk. Okay, okay. that's that's the that's my kind of like the the fence over which I'm not looking back into the into the schoolyard. I'm not going to back going to go back to that school. Which means that the, the way in which you can run this application basically consists of whatever amount of containers for the front end 
and the database in cloud or in some kind of a monolithic big virtual machine. Most okay. common thing. Yes. Usually in these use cases, I would select cloud, which means that I'm basically right signing on the dotted line, a contract at which somebody is going to be very expensive because those things are very expensive, but still they offer less complexity in terms of the architecture of you having to deploy it and make it run fast uh, up to certain SLA level, which is important, versus just having it there and putting your stuff in the database. And this is something that I mentioned over the co course of the past I know, 10 years since I started do doing work, for example, on Azure. Most people do tend to think about it this way, which, again, is a simplification of a known problem, which I agree with that approach. But here comes the problem that's actually real. You can have as many of your front-end containers as you want. So running your web application. You can easily configure those containers, for example, to serve the web content from, let's say, Azure, AWS, GCP, whatever, cloud storage account from a share, okay. or synchronize them in between them, <laughs> which usually we don't want to necessarily do. We want to have some kind of a scalable and highly available approach to the storage of that as well, in a sense. Here's where, where things get much more complicated because out of the box, most people doing the development of this are going to forget about the fact that some kind of a backend storage like this needs to exist. That's the first problem. And then on the front end, there's an additional problem because, and hence the reason why I was so adamant that some things in that in our DevOps episode were structured in a completely incorrect way in terms of the uh, not necessarily complexity, but the order in which it was presented on that website. Okay. <coughs> that means that you will have to figure out a way to load balance them as well. And that can be a part of your workflow or something that you do on a side. Can, can, can I interrupt you? Yes. Because I think that you went way too far into design. Yeah, and, and, I and did the it reason, on purpose. No, no. Okay. You did it on purpose. But I think that you uh, made an absolutely phenomenal point and then you went into design i think that the biggest problem that we have right now is that people when they are talking about containers when they are talking about microservices whatever they are usually using the best possible usage cases as an example like a marketing slogan as a, as a marketing slogan yes. and then they are trying to fit whatever problem they actually into have their into the reality and this is the this is one of those things where uh, you always need to come up with an example that is going to be an amazing example of why something should be done, mm -hmm. but also there should be an amazing example why something shouldn't be done. Correct. Because your example with microservices, cloud, SQL. It was as tech, simple as possible. Yes, but this is the most usual example. It fits all the check marks. Uh, it is simple to understand. It is understandable by almost everybody who isn't a developer. Uh, it is actually scalable mm -hmm. uh, it uses the technologies as they should be used mm -hmm. so there is no reason from my point perspective there is no reason why we shouldn't be doing everything this way mm -hmm. but with a big asterisk and this big asterisk is if everything is a thing that uses a front end and the back end database and that's it yeah which in real world doesn't have to be which, so, which, which doesn't happen yeah i wanted to start with something simple to, uh, to kind of like uh, and then we can take a shovel and start sh shoveling and i think that the first thing that we should be dealing with is that uh okay you are dealing with uh, a database 
fine. You're dealing with front-end, fine. Let's do it uh, multi-area or multi-location or let's do it across, next, ac next across uh, zones. Mm -hmm. As soon as you have uh, something that has to run in the, I don't know, multiple, EU, availability, multiple zones. availability zones, you suddenly have a big problem with the database. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you have a big problem with latency. Correct. And with concurrency, uh, the, the, the concurrency is not, not such a problem, but the uh, database synchronization, is, synchronization going to be is, the, is, the, is the biggest problem. And this is something that is going to bother you. Mm -hmm. And then uh, suddenly you have a problem that you cannot solve by simply using uh, microservices. This is why I'm, I'm so heavily uh, harping on the correct design principle, because it is easy to design this in the wrong way. And I'm uh, to actually to that point, cloud providers are kind of uh, not necessarily on purpose, but they're making it easier for you to design it in the wrong way. But I know, okay, I'm completely uh, not with you. They're doing it on purpose. I don't think they are. Because they, I think they are. I think that the dark patterns and the idea of uh, you piling up the resources is something that they quite okay. like. So I think that one of the um, driving factors for the cloud uh, providers is that they want to uh, give you enough, uh, the shovel big enough to pile the services on. Yes. And, this and never is, to dig yourself out of them. Yes. And this okay. is one of those things that you also need to address. Mm -hmm. But... Let's stop talking about the design like something that uh, is uh, okay. That is that, <laughs> that, that is not happening because mm -hmm. as soon as you start creating your application, you're you're a designer. You're creating an architecture. So everything that you do is it is it is is it is, it is, it is a design. It could be a better design. It could be a worse design. It could be an extremely uh, bad design. But it's a design. So architecture is something that we are all creating. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about bad architecture and good architecture. What I described, I would call basically a starting point of a good architecture. I think that the example is an amazing architecture. Mm -hmm. But the thing that then when you come, uh, when the real life meets uh, the design, mm -hmm. then we are talking about things that should be and could be done better. Okay. No, no. Actually, your, uh, your basic way of approaching the problem that you just mentioned is to copy paste my design across multiple availability zones, put load balancer in every of one of those regions, availability zones, whatever you're using, and then to put a global load balancer on top of everything. This is More by far the simplest solution. Wrong. This the simplest wrong solution uh, it's to not, the problem. It's not wrong. It's not wrong per se. Uh, from the front end application standpoint, it is a correct design. Yes. From the database standpoint, that's a different topic. Yes, but I'm to always talking about the system. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be uh, the one who is going to say, okay, I have an amazing system that has 12 different uh, Locations? parts. No, 12, yeah. 12 different parts. Mm -hmm. 10 of them are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's called technical marketing one yes. one. Yeah, okay. I actually wanted to go further with this because this is where the part of design that a lot of people are are not necessarily immune to, but unaware of, can come heavily into play. And you kind of touched on that by mentioning the word latency. Okay? Let's say that you're using, it doesn't really matter which cloud provider we are talking about. I'm just going to use Azure as an example because that's what I'm most familiar with. The latency between different regions 
as you correctly started to point out, is different, which means jitter in our yes in our language of technical okay. science. You can do database replication, or you can use a database as a service across multiple regions. So it's kind of solvable problem. But if you do it via VMs or something like that, then you're going to want to put basically uh, that copy-paste of the design that I mentioned. You're going to want to put the database locally in all of the aforementioned availability zones, regions, whatnot, close to the web applications at the front. And you're going to have to figure out the back-end way of replicating the data. This is where the problems that you mentioned not only start, they compound with huge interest. But there are actually a couple of relatively straightforward ways uh, in terms of, again, the infrastructure part of design. This is not app design by, at all. If you, are, uh, if you know a little bit about, let's say, Azure in this use case that I'm mentioning, and if you configure your stuff correctly on the networking level, there are multiple different ways of those, let's say, VMs with MySQL communicating over front-end, back-end network, VPN. There are multiple different ways to connect this. There are pretty de deterministic ways of measuring the latency, which is very important in this use case, not outright bandwidth. Outright bandwidth is important, but latency tends okay, to no, be Okay, no, Azure has an amazing bandwidth in dealing with uh, VMs inside the Azure. You tested it. Yeah, I was going to go there. Yeah. Yes, yes. Just being sarcastic, of course. Actually, uh, what I found during the COVID era, it, it doesn't apply now, but what I found during the COVID era is that if I used a public IP address of virtual machine A and virtual machine B and established, let's say, an SCP session between them, basically copying a large file, it was indescribably faster Faster, not slow, faster I, I, yes, yes, no. than copying it via the backend network, basically the network within Azure that is not the public one, which which really threw me. It shouldn't be that way necessarily, but it, it is what it is. But that's just one of the ways in which you can configure your stuff. Realistically, larger enterprises, if they're doing application as we are uh, describing it, they would probably want to implement connections that are going to be akin to site-to-site -site VPNs, which is doable in Azure. And then you do have a lot of extra freedom, Azure gateways and whatnot, to select which size of the gateway we want, which is going to have direct influence on the latency and the bandwidth, guaranteed latency and the bandwidth, which is going to heavily improve your situation. So again, Excel IT management episode, cloud design is much more complex than a lot of people tend to think, but by, by making a series of good enough design decisions, because there is no ideal decision in this uh, the scenario that we are discussing, you can uh, get to a situation in which application works, I, I'm not going to say perfect because that's never going to happen, but well enough and is scalable. Okay, but let's do a big step back. Mm -hmm. And let's stop advertising cloud as something that is viable uh, for scaling applications because right now we are trying to deal with monolith versus microservices. Yeah, that's the next uh, topic. I think this should be the only topic because if you go into uh, how to divide those into cloud, 
how to do the multi-zone uh, availability of Next the application. Next step is multi-cloud. Uh, multi-cloud and then uh, trying to integrate private and public cloud mm -hmm. and then uh, switching over to private cloud mm -hmm. and then switching over to Raspberry Pi that was actually able to run the and entire do, application. And IoT and then whatnot. No, 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 but then, then deciding that the actual, there was a Raspberry Pi that was able to completely run the application, but we were just over-engineering everything uh, for exactly the last two the years reason why and wasted a couple of million dollars on the <laughs> cloud services. Exactly the reason why I started this story and went in that direction, because I wanted to further elaborate uh, on the topic that we covered at the beginning of the episode, which is how to create a solution without a problem or mostly create that scenario. I just want to see, uh, could it be possible to create a multi-million dollar solution to do the Hello World webpage uh, in, in a cloud? And I know the problem is that I know probably at least four or five ways how to do it uh, completely legitimately and without any meaning at all. So um, let's go back to microservices. Mm -hmm. Why should we do a microservices? And this is do, this is one thing. And then uh, why should we do uh, the even worse thing, management of microservices? Kate's uh, or Kubernetes uh, and the other guys who are dealing with, uh, I'm not going to go the, about the open guys who are doing dealing with the microservices. I'm just going with Kubernetes. Uh, are today's developers over um, selling how Kubernetes and how microservices are working yes. when they are dealing things? And should we send the developers um, for a relearning process? Uh, to make them attitude to, adjustment, attitude adjustment to make them uh, stop using, misusing the services uh, where they shouldn't be used. You know how we talked a couple of months ago about laptops, and we mentioned Asus's laptops for a second. Yes, and we both use the terminology decrapify. Yes, that's what needs to happen. But I think that the problem is that uh, some developers are dealing with microservices in a way because I'm not talking about developers per se. I'm talking about the whole process. Yes, but. You cannot decrepify a process if the person who is designing the entire process doesn't think that it is crappy. The problem with is if you have a developer who only knows how to program microservice, he's, go he's going to program microservice. Of course. He doesn't understand how to uh, step away and say, okay, this doesn't need to be uh, five containers or 500 containers. Hence the reason why DevOps is so important and hence the reason why cloud engineers are just as important as the people doing the application program. But we cannot re-educate enough DevOps guys to become developers that are going to be fully-fledged developers for the cloud. We can if we look at them from the standpoint of system engineering and not from the perspective of uh, programming because both of these perspectives need to coexist, uh, coexist within the realms of the same environment. But to make a joke, and this is going to be a controversial one, uh, you can create a good programmer out of a DevOps guy, but usually you cannot create a DevOps guy out of a programmer. So um, I think that the ops part I, is I, something I think that you... You, you actually misspelled a couple of words, but okay. Yes, I think the ops part mm -hmm. is different uh, uh, from the dev part uh, in such a way that in order to be a good guy in operations, uh, you need a certain amount of being able to um, improvise mm -hmm. and being able to understand new technologies. Mm -hmm. 
a good developer can be a good developer without understanding new technologies, just sticking to, to a single technology and being good at it. Yeah. And this is one of those things that's, that's a big problem because sometimes, and I mean a lot of times, you're going to run into a developer that is amazing at running a Clipper application, <coughs> but he's not going to be able to do anything uh, newer than this. As a side point, there is a Visual Flagship 8 for Linux that is able to run um, run Clipper applications on the... You really new, need to check that. Yes. Okay. I need to check the textbook definition of insanity. No, no. Uh, I wanted to uh, I wanted to check if I remember correctly that it is called the Flagship. It is called Flagship. It exists uh, even now. And I bet you that we could do a container uh, for this on Windows and it would be able to I run I have it. a couple of stupid <laughs> ideas on that. That's an awesome idea. Okay, I, have, but uh, I work for a company that's uh, uh, dealing with applications. They have more than a few uh, Clipper and Boron Delphi-based applications that we could containerize just for fun. Uh, doing a wrong thing, of course, but still. Yes, for, and, uh, for the purpose of uh, having an exercise, nothing more. Uh, just as a side note, I'm waiting for when Microsoft is going to push for uh, something that will be container-like. Right now, they have a big problem because they need a container. Um, we con can run containers on Microsoft OSs. Yes, you but can they, run them in Azure in three or four different ways. Yes, well. but I, I think that the biggest problem that Microsoft has is that they don't have their own solution uh, that is based uh, that is container-based. Docker for desktop. But it's not Microsoft. They tried. They tried. Yes, I know they tried. Because uh, today I was just uh, checking up. Uh, there is a new release of um, develop Visual uh, Windows 11 development uh, suite. Mm -hmm. This is a VM containing Visual Studio and everything else uh, required for development. And this actually cries to become a container, not a VM. whole VM image. But they are unable to do it unless they're using a third-party solution and they are unable to use a third-party solution. So this is something that should be containerized. Okay. The good example of an app that needs to be containerized, unlike that, many others. But I think that uh, by uh, embracing something like Snap or Flatpak mm -hmm. on Windows, amazing things could be done. You think that's ever going to happen? Yes. Okay. There is visual subsystem for Linux, so it is going to happen there. <laughs> Yeah, I knew it that you were going to go that way. But uh, I think that uh, we are uh, going into the future where a visual subsystem for Linux is going to be something that uh, all the developers are going to be using. Just like what they used to do with some other applications. Yes, and this is something that S is going Sigwin to... and whatnot. Because uh, the aforementioned uh, Windows 11 development uh, package with v VM has installed uh, Visual System for Linux. Inclu it is pinned on the on the task on, on, on the taskbar, mm -hmm. and it actually is fully functional as a Visual System for Linux. So they went so far as installing Linux inside the VM because the developers required it. Mm -hmm. So we have come to a point where something like a containerization technology that is not uh, proprietary, and it is not by a failing company such as Docker, mm -hmm. uh, is going to be needed on, on Windows, and I would buy into it. Uh, ironically, the, the way in which Docker is failing is exactly because of the monolithic approach of Docker as a service to manage other services. Yes. They completely missed the Kubernetes uh, train. train. 
And this is one of the one of those things when uh, the, somebody uh, creates an amazing technology and then uh, realizes that completely the architecture misses the is point. completely wrong. Completely misses the point. Yeah. Okay. But that's a good example, actually, of Docker. Do, Docker is basically DOS. Yeah. Yeah. The, in, the, in, in, metaphorically speaking. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I agree with that. Okay. The reason why I went with the um, approach that it took so s- simple web application two tier because three and four tier and whatnot tier tends to be much more complicated and complex specifically why I went with cloud and I want to expand into multi-cloud and hybrid and whatnot is to kind of describe the architecture uh, as it gets much more complex, which is what we've partially, partially done. But furthermore, to drill into a topic that I started talking about before I was so rudely interrupted, uh, of course, joking, uh, which is a load balancing. Okay. Okay. Um, this is one of the biggest blind spots of developers from my standpoint that I've seen on the market so far. Because, uh, and this is actually more of a global critique of the state of IT in general than necessarily just developers. People have a tendency to oversimplify, super oversimplify. Or overdesign. Or overdesign. Yes. But they oversimplify the way in which load balancing works in these sorts of scenarios. Okay. Because the correct architecture to do in these sorts of scenarios would actually be at least multi-cloud, some kind of a global load balancing solution, which is in completely different cloud to, uh, when compared to Azure, Azure, let's say AWS, with load balancing per site in Azure and VMs there. And then we can also start the discussion about having maybe parts of that infrastructure in AWS or GCP or local or any combination thereof. For uh, a reason why I'm saying this, again, from design standpoint, is that is the design that alleviates risk. Very important aspect of these sorts of designs. And a lot of times, yet again, to further drive that point home, when people are dealing with the ops part of the story, they completely miss the point of it. The, what, I, what I just said is the point of that. In our I think case. the first thing that people should have on their mind is that even the biggest cloud providers, uh, when it comes to monitoring, are in multi-cloud. Mm-hmm. So Azure does its own monitoring through other providers' clouds mm-hmm. because they have to. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with Google, it's the same with the uh, AVS. Uh, and this is where people should be start uh, start learning, should start learning about being cloud agnostic, being technology agnostic, because uh, sometimes the only solution is not to use the technology that you want to use, Mm -hmm. uh, but it is to use the technology that you actually need to use. Mm -hmm. So wanting and needing something is not the same. Cloud is definitely guilty of that. Yes, cloud is always guilty of that. But uh, what I I want you to answer me is how how do we bridge the problem between the uh, architecture being done right using microservices and uh, developers understanding where where and when they should stop deploying microservices and go back to the monolith? That's a very good question. I don't see a single way to do that. Part of it is going to be, uh, just like you started saying, re-education about some things, definitely. 
but my my biggest my kind of gut feeling is that that's going to be very difficult unless we start teaching a lot of uh, Excel IT managers and developers uh, uh, much more fundamental IT concepts for which they're not necessarily going to like like that or take it. And I understand that. I'm not dissing on this because most of the most time uh, people who are system engineers want to do system engineering jobs. Programmers want to do programming jobs. And this mishmash of things that happens in DevOps, containers are the fundamental highway of Dev DevOps for the most part, is not necessarily something that everybody likes. But a lot of people use it because it's for their benefit until it's not. Just like in, when we talked about some other topics in some of the previous episodes, people tend to be very utilitarian about that. And I'm telling you, the second uh, uh, developers start realizing how much more complex the ops part of the story is, the, uh, the second they're going to say, I'm here to develop. That's it. And you, everybody else, go solve. That's my experience. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing or something that puts bad onus on developers, just so that we are clear. But I think that this is a bad, bad thing in the same way where people are uh, trying to be uh, in any, any work. So in any possible line of work, mm -hmm. when you see somebody who, is, who, said that, who says that he's going to just do A, did a or this one thing, and he doesn't, he's not interested and he's not, he doesn't want to do B, C or D. This is a person that you don't want to uh, have any... Uh, Generally any, speaking, well, in your yes. team. Yes, I know. Yes. So, but so, people have the freedom of choice. That's the, the, the what's what happened with the market in the past three to five years, especially with COVID, uh, especially with developers. It's not necessarily something that's going to last forever, of course. But if they see that situation and they want to just do A and you force them to be, do B, C, and D, they're going to resign and find another job. I'm not saying also that that's bad. That's actually good for both sides. For the uh, for the argument that you just made, and for the developers as well, because uh, from my perspective, uh, dealing with microservices is usually messy. Mm -hmm. uh, my the usual thing that I have the problem with uh, microservices, microservices is that uh, is with uh, 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 microservices be, being completely misdesigned, mm -hmm. being overly designed. And then having no documentation. In wrong places. In wrong places and then having no documentation. Of course. And everything, this this all combines into something that is almost completely uh, non-supportable. Mm -hmm. And then when I come to think about microservices, I have, I have yet to find a well-designed system that, was, that required my help. Usually when I had to help somebody, it was somebody who completely did did the did the complete uh, 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 screw up of the entire system and then uh, they required light, immediate they, they required immediate help and this help was, was usually something that was an annoying boring and extremely tedious to do mm -hmm. simply because the system itself was misdesigned mm -hmm. so i think that the biggest one of the biggest problems from my perspective from the from the uh, from an ops perspective, is that usually when we have to deal with microservices, they're misdesigned, mm -hmm. and if they're uh, they're designed in a good way, they're usually designed by somebody who knows what he's doing, and then he doesn't need help. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, 
I see that the biggest problem for the ops guys is that they're always running into uh, misdesigned systems mm -hmm. and developers That's my experience as well. Yes, and the developers are always designing systems and then calling for help. Mm-hmm. Which means that they maybe they are not doing their job extremely well. I agree, definitely agree. We have a lot of, uh, let's say, statistical data to prove that point. Actually, already here in our work, so not going uh, overly deeply into that. But for some reason, our the students that uh, are on the program engineering program, they some uh, most of them somehow think that the containers are be all and all solution for their problems, which they are not. Okay, but this is this is in line with the uh, people who uh, see the technology X being the Angular, not JS, yes. Yes. whatever is the solution to end yes. solutions, and that's it. And these are yeah, the people. It's it's understandable that they are like that until uh, their head gets smashed into the wall of fixing a problem which they cannot fix with a certain technology that they kind of like think that they are going to fix it with. It requires real life experience. With. Okay, but this is something that also requires a lot of work. Uh, no, no, yeah, it, it, it requires a lot of self-work, mm -hmm. and this is something that a lot of people, when dealing, one right now we are talking about uh, education, uh, dealing with microservices, dealing with technologies such as Kubernetes, uh, Docker's, Podman's, uh, OpenShift, uh, and so on and so on and so on, uh, requires you to understand an enormous amount of uh, topics, as we discussed in the DevOps. Episode. Yes, 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 and. It's not only that you need to understand the enormous amount of topics, you need to actually understand them. Yeah. You you cannot just know about them and then uh, work. I heard about that. That's yeah, yes, and, and, and I can work, um, work my way around it. Because as soon as you start working your way around a particular piece of technology in the Kubernetes mm -hmm. world, you're going to end up in a big trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And this is something. This is something that is uh, usually missing uh, from the perspective of the, of the uh, dev guys, and I'm sad about those because I think that they are just misplacing or not understanding the complexity of the problem that they're uh, they're, they're misapplying uh, things in a lot of different ways. Yes, but they are, I think they are missing the complexity. I think that the problem that we created with all the microservices is, uh, is that at first glance, all of them seem uh, simple. They're not. Yes, but they seem, seem simple. Yeah, yeah, when you explain, uh, when I try to explain to somebody what a Docker is, you just said, okay, this, it is a smaller VM that is able to do its, its own job. It is an amazing thing. It has UnionFS, whatever. And then suddenly you realize that the person does not grasp the concept of what you're, you're trying to say and doesn't understand that as soon as you start adding layers, layers, and you are adding layers, you are suddenly be, uh, going to end up with something much more complex than they're able to... And something that they can touch right. less, basically. Yes. Because uh, it requires a little bit of imagination to understand how those objects work as well, which not everybody has. I think that the biggest problem that I have seen uh, when dealing with uh, containers it is the idea of not being able to have something that is going to be permanent. And uh, mm -hmm. okay. the biggest jump for, for every designer or every developer, um, the, the biggest jump for every designer or every developer is jumping from, I have my database inside my VM. Mm -hmm. I have my web pages inside my VM. I can do whatever I want to cache it on the VM's uh, disk and then do exceptional Z. And then jumping to, I have my uh, container I cannot put anything into the container and uh, consider it permanent because it is going to get erased. Mm -hmm. 
And when they realized how to do this, they are more than halfway there. Agreed. Agreed. And yeah. this, is, this is one of those problems. Hence the reason why in my example of the design, I was talking about storage account and some kind of a file share for mounting the data for the web application instead of copying the data into the into the container itself, because that tends to be the wrong approach in many of the use cases. But to kind of like come back to the original topic or to circle back to the original topic, what do monoliths have to do with all of that? Uh, Going back basically to your first question, why do we need containers? Do we need them at all? And when? I think that the biggest thing that we need to realize is that do we need Linux? Mm -hmm. Yes, we do. Why? Because it works. So we need a monolith because it works sometimes. Mm -hmm. We need a Windows because they sometimes work. We need a cloud because it sometimes works. So it's just a tool. I think that the being something being a monolith or being a microservice oriented or a, a serverless oriented uh, service is something that is just up to the designer. It gives you the an application. Uh, it, it gives you uh, the ability to have a much a larger tool set mm -hmm. to solve problems, but it's not a end all uh, save all uh, thing. So we cannot fix all the problems by using any of those uh, services courses for courses yes but so monolith is a monolith uh serverless is serverless whatever mm -hmm. we can use and i know a particular case that was using serverless uh, functions in the right way so 10 or 12 years ago because they just realized that this is a solution for them. Mm -hmm. They were using this solution for a particular, extremely, extremely, extremely particular case, but it was working amazing for them. And the rest of the application was the, uh, was in a monolith as they come. So it was uh, without any other uh, outside dependencies, without any outside um, calling of any outside functions. And it was a big monolith. The application itself was a couple of gigabytes uh, uh, big. So. Basically, it used the uh, serverless functions, Lambda functions, for a particular case that they needed to solve, and the rest was the monolith, and it was an amazingly designed application because it served the purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think that, do we need a monolith? Yes. Do we need the serverless applications? Yes. Containers? Yes. OpenShift, OpenStack, uh, VMware? Yes. Because they all Our serve tools. a purpose. They're tools. As long as we treat them as tools, we're happy with the way in which they might be used let's call it that way yes and this is one of those things where people uh are unhappy when i say that the reason why i don't like uh macOS or apple is because they refuse to be part of the part of any tool set mm -hmm. they uh intentionally are not trying to be compatible with anything because this they, they think that their ecosystem is uh good enough to be uh, self-efficient, uh, self-sustained. And this has been right so far. For them, at least. Yes, for them. But I think that one of the problems is that I want to be able to use uh, macOS as one of, the, one of the tools. I want all of my hardware and all of my software to be able to work together. And this is the reason why sometimes I don't like uh, Apple. 
Okay, so how is your transition to back to Android phone going? Um, I'm going to switch over in, in, uh, at the end of the month, but I'm quite happy. I'm quite happy. I think that uh, the only thing that uh, my iOS uh, taught me is that um, it's an amazing design system. Inside, it works amazing. It is running much, much better on much worse hardware than the Android is. Uh, at the same time, it lacks some functionality, but I, in the last uh, uh, half year, I didn't miss almost anything other than wireless support. Okay, wireless support is uh, flaky, but but by my wireless support, I mean things that shouldn't be supported at all on the mobile phone, so like something like shark, uh, wire sharks and so on. And this is the only thing. The only thing that I, I'm actually uh, annoyed uh, by is that in order to get a, in order to get a phone that is uh, running correctly, you must spend at least three or four times more than uh, on a given Android phone. To have your apps or what? Yes. Replacement apps or yes. Whatnot. So okay. so I th I think that this this phone is old. It works great. It is amazing for its uh, hardware capabilities, but it is not different enough from the Android uh, world that it makes me happy. And I have almost all my stuff in the Android world. So I'm not dissatisfied with the, uh, with the uh, iPhone. Why do you need to be happy with the phone? Because I'm using it. It's the device that I'm most using uh, during the day. Hmm. I want to be happy with the screen. I want to be happy with everything that is working on the phone because this is the only thing that I'm using all the day. Okay. Okay. It's like having a bad tooth. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to have a bad tooth, but since you are using it all the day, you are going to notice it uh, mm. every day, all uh, all day. Mm -hmm. So you need to fix it. Mm? Okay. And this is just like a misplaced. Uh, but but uh, while using iOS, I just feel like I'm using wrong shoes. Mm -hmm. So everything is okay. They're my size, but something is still awkward. Something is awkward. The S, and I'm missing some things. And I see that if I want to buy better shoes by Apple, I'm going to be wasting enormous amount of money. Mm -hmm. So in just order... like you would in cloud, if you overdo your yes, monolith yes, yes, redesign. Yes. But it's 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 the same. It's the same with all the services. So this is a tool, but this tool is not uh, connected enough to the the rest of my toolset. And this was my my primary point. And by itself, it's amazing. But in, but in your ecosystem, it's an ecosystem, outlier. It's an outlier, and it is something that I cannot connect to uh, a couple of devices that I would like to connect to. Yeah, in my metaphor, the, uh, the the cost of the cloud environment for running stuff like yes apps and whatnot is very akin to what uh, Apple. Yes, no, 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 no. This is one of those things. Yeah, it is. Okay. For the time being, that's enough. We're going to have some future episodes uh, related to this topic. Yes, yes, scratch, yes, yes, yes. Scratch the surface of uh, monoliths versus containerized applications. There and iOS versus Android. Yes. There are many more topics to cover, but we're going to leave that for some future episodes. And until then, I've been Vedran. Thank you for being with us. I was Yasmin. And, and see, see you next time. Bye. Bye.